Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 50 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. In today's episode, I speak with Peter Seglaris about his professional career as a freelance clarinetist in London, his latest album called English Fantasy, and how he became an early adopter of the Bakun MOBA clarinets in spite of being halfway around the world at the time of their release. Peter shares some truly valuable advice that all clarinetists can use, such as the importance of finding balance between your artistic, business, and family lives, and ensuring that you're on the right path musically. The giveaway for today's episode is a signed copy of Peter's latest disc, and if you'd like a chance to win, please be sure to enter your email address at clarineat.com slash subscribe. The Clarineat podcast is brought to you in part by the support of its listeners, and this week I'd like to thank those who are purchasing their new and neat clarinet items at the Clarineat online store. I've got all sorts of things up there now, ranging from string ligatures and and reed cases by Vientos Bamboo to a new rotary fingering chart by a guy I met in Chicago that's just a really cool idea. There's free shipping on all orders over $175 worldwide, and I've shipped to over 20 countries now, which is just absolutely amazing. So check that out if you're looking for something new, maybe see what we've got in stock and help support the podcast at the same time. You can do this at www.clarineat.com store. Today's episode was also brought to you by our sponsor, Dedaria Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. So I'm here today with Peter Siglaris, who is a freelance solo artist living in London. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. So you were recently featured as one of a thousand Londoners in a video series. Um, how did you How did you come up with this honor, and, and what was it like being interviewed for that? Well, um, it's a very very strange uh, strange thing, really. Um, but how I got involved in this uh, one Sunday afternoon. This is a very boring thing to say, but myself and my wife. Um, we were uh, just doing, you know, daily chores. We, we actually went shopping, you know, grocery shopping and things like that. Um, and in our local shopping centre, shopping mall, um, there, there, there was a, a like a camera set up and, and you know, so a, a little table and things. And I just, I was just curious and just stopped by. And um, uh, the lady I spoke to then, she, uh, yeah, she said... Um, you know, got talking how, uh, you, you know, how long have you lived in London? Were you born here originally and things? Um, and he asked me to write down on some colored paper. Um, I think one of the questions was, what does London mean to you? Uh, what's one of your favorite places um, within the city? And and what does it mean to be a London or something along those lines? I can't remember exactly now what it was. It was a few, it was about three three years ago now, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and I thought nothing of it. 
I, I kind of held these things up to the camera um, and uh, and that was it. And then I, you know, exchanged details. Just I think it, you know it was obviously some sort of project that they were doing, and obviously wanted to keep in touch with the people that uh, did that element of it. Um, and I got a, I got a, uh, an email saying, would you be interested in in being one of our um, like kind of first? I think it was the first hundred or something. Wow. Uh, and. Um, I can't remember my exact number, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm like in the 50s or something. Uh, it might be like 56. But uh, if you go on the Thousand Londoners website, I'm sure it will it will say on there. Um, and yeah, basically that that was that. So we arranged. Um, you know, a few months went by. Uh, I was trying to work out how we would do it, and I. I um, yeah, that's right. The, the the December of 2013, I was doing a, um, a Mozart quintet, like a chamber recital. Um, and so part of that concert, I was going to play the Mozart quintet, some movements from the Max Brook uh, um, eight pieces. Uh, and I think there was a there was a piano trio as well and, 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 a, and another thing as well. Um, and, and they came along to that and, and kind of videoed a little bit of the of the performance. And of course, it's a tiny, you know, it's a, I think it's about three minutes long, isn't it, or something like that, the video. So yeah, it's a yeah. really real tiny snapshot. Um, and um, the the overall aim of that project is to try and document, um, like, well, I mean, you know, this is kind of, as the name suggests, a thousand Londoners all across the whole uh, spectrum, across the whole city, you know. And, of course, London is such a cosmopolitan and, and uh, amazingly diverse city. Um, and it, it's it's great, you know. I mean, I, I think I went to the opening uh, for that and uh, watched the first four, uh, which included a, a chap that works as a tailor um, and and is descended from the the uh, the famous um, uh, line of tailors uh, that used to occupy a lot of the east end of London, um, Hackney, um, and and sort of going towards Brick Lane. Uh, and they're all like kind of uh, uh, Jewish um, immigrants that came over um, at the turn of the 20th century and, and obviously subsequently um, before the Second World War and things like that. Um, and that there's obviously a very big tradition there of, of, of tailoring and, and high quality tailoring as well. Um, and I think another there was another chap that was a cage fighter. Um, and had won several trophies and things, so so that was very very interesting. I was very very honoured to kind of be be chosen um, for for that, you know. And I think you know subsequently they've had obviously other musicians um, from all genres. Uh, so so yeah, it was it was great fun just to kind of be asked to do that. Yeah, it was a really cool video, and I, it is kind of neat how they followed you around to you know, the, the performance or the rehearsal um, mm. of those pieces and those kind of things. I've been meaning to sort of watch a few more of them, but I feel like it's a huge task to get started with, with a thousand to watch. <laughs> well, I, that, that's the thing. And I, I, I mean, I, I have no idea where they're at at the moment, but uh, I mean, I think some somebody at the time s- kind of suggested that to do a, th- a thousand would take um, several years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I don't you think know, they're done, so. done yet. Yeah. One of the things you say in the video that I, I really like probably the most was the path is not set so you can wander as you like and I thought that was kind of a perfect um, insight into the life of a freelancer would you walk me through Mm. what freelancing is like in London for a clarinet player like yourself of course Um, yeah I I, 
I mean, the, the way you just said it made me sound very profound. <laughs> it was quite not. profound. I, I, um, I had to sit back and take it in for a moment. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, think, I think with life in general, you know, you never know what life's going to throw at you. Um, and, and, and I think being a freelance uh, uh, clarinetist musician, um, you know, has, has that. You just never know what your, um, inverted commas, job is going to, to, to throw at you. Um, I mean, I, I love the variety. That's, that's, I think that's for me is, is one of the, you know, the interesting perks of it. Um, one day you might be in the studio doing a, a recording session, a, a jingle or something like that for the TV or, or, or whatever it might be. Or some, you know, what they call library sessions of, of music that's been specially composed that might go on, on, um, uh, like as a, uh, a like a backing for a, a documentary or whatever you know and then the next day you might be teaching five students and then the next day you might be going into one of the one of the symphony orchestras um in london or or elsewhere in the country um and, and do a heavy program of Mahler or tchaikovsky or, or whatever it might be um and then you know you might have a day off and then you might have a a solo recital or something like that, you know, and, and I think it really does keep you on your toes. Um, because I mean, you know, music is not set, is it really as a, you know, it, it's forever changing. I mean, even, even the great works that everyone knows backwards, <laughs> they're always, there's always somebody will come with a different interpretation. I think that's the beauty of it. Um, so that's, I suppose a little tiny snapshot of perhaps be, what being a freelancer is like, you know, it's, it's the, absolute variety and and being open to like i say whatever comes your way but also not being kind of too limited in trying to say focus on a uh, on a solo career or a chain music career or an orchestral career um i think nowadays um you know we live very much in a uh, you know it's very much a kind of portfolio um career to kind of use that sort of cliche it's so funny you say that because there's actually another um, podcast called The Portfolio Composer and it's designed to right. help composers with their freelancing career and build themselves a portfolio of income opportunities. Mm. Um, so that's really exactly what it's like. Um, you know, I'm myself a freelancer and I think that many more musicians are, are having to become um, freelancers. I don't mean having mm. in, a, in a negative connotation. I just mean that there's literally not the jobs out there there once were for musicians. Do you think yeah. freelance is the way of the future for musicians? Oh, I, 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 I couldn't honestly say, to be honest. Um, I mean, we'd have to look at the, the other, uh, I suppose, you know, social and political aspects um, really, because of course mm-hmm. you, have, you have to ask yourself, well, why are there so many great players um, of all instruments, you know, leaving um, conservatoires around the world and not, not being able to have those opportunities? And, and is that because um, the uh, governments and, and things are, uh, you know, are they um, not actually funding culture and, and arts in general? Um, I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, it's such a, such a broad um, broad thing. It's such a broad topic to discuss. Um, I mean, you know, I think freelancing is, is definitely a way to have a career as a, as a musician, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, like I said before, you know, if you, if you're open and willing, 
um, to to uh, engage in in different aspects of the uh, industry, um, I think you could be very successful. You know, um, I think I think gone are the days where where you know people could kind of just go and and walk into into you know for example orchestral positions or, or things like that competition is fierce and so i think you know freelancing is a good way is a good way to kind of have the benefits or you know reap the benefits of of what there is on offer um you know it's i think it's just more more to playing an instrument nowadays mm-hmm. definitely how do you deal um, yeah. with the uncertainty of freelancing? You mentioned that a little bit a minute ago, mm. and and sometimes it, it's true you never quite know where your next opportunity is coming from, but there is something coming. How do you how do you push forward with that? Uh, it's, it's it's difficult. Um, I mean, you know, freelancing can be very much living a hand to mouth existence sometimes. Um, you know, kind of making sure making sure the rent's paid and, and making sure your bills are covered and. And all that sort of thing, um, but I also think one has to be quite proactive um, in generating, trying to generate work as well. Um, you know, in in the kind of the nicest possible way. Uh, it's 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 a, it's a very fine balancing act. I mean, I, I find um, a lot of time is eaten up. Ta- you know, sat in front of a computer. You know, s- sending off emails to concert promoters and to music societies and clubs um, and, and just to try and try and generate, you know, concerts here, there, uh, festivals. Um, and, well, let's, just, and just, let's just dig a little deeper know. there for a second because mm. that actually opens up an interesting insight. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people who are considering uh, freelancing, especially younger students, they kind of mm. just wait for the work to come to them. But it sounds like you're very actively pursuing these opportunities. Uh, what advice would you have in that regard? Well, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I d- you can't rest on your laurels. You, you really can't. Um, you know, the, the phone won't ring. Unless, of course, you know, unless you're lucky enough um, to, to have somebody that's kind of watching your back, if you see what I mean, um, and, will, and will kind of um, recommend you or, 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 or give you a, you know, a helping hand. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think... If you've got that, that's great. But I also think you know you, one has to has to be very active and pursue pursue the things that they really enjoy doing um, as well, and and just and just kind of uh, very politely, you know, let people know that you're there and mm. that you're you're capable and you're able, you're professional, you have a good attitude, um, and, and 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 that's it, really. I think and I think once people. You know, certainly as a as a student, you're very kind of um, you know if you're if you're in an institution for three, four, five years, six years, whatever, um, it's very easy to kind of be in that little bubble. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, the professional music world is so much bigger than that. Um, and of course, generating good um, uh, you know great friendships and and, and networking whilst a student. Um, within the college environment is is great because you never know who might get an opportunity and might remember um, remember you and think oh yeah actually you know so and so I remember them from my college days they would be they would uh, be good for this project that I'm working on whether it's a composer or a conductor or or whatever um, you know or somebody setting up a new a new chamber group or a new orchestra or, you know whatever it might be um, 
but like I said, you know, the, the actual profession is so much bigger. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think, I think you've got to think about what you really want to do. What, uh, you know, what does your, um, what are your interest? Where do your interests lie? Do you want to be purely an orchestral player, symphonic player? Um, uh, or do you want to do pit work? Do you want to do West End stuff? Do you want to do, oh, you know, theatre uh, work? Um, do you want to just be a soloist? Do you want to record? Do you, I mean, it's endless. Do you want to be a director? You know, um, I mean, can you conduct? You know, there are these, there's all these different opportunities, you know, that, that, are, that are out there. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just a case of uh, finding finding your passions or your passion, your passions, and... Uh, uh, and and just um, sticking at it, and and uh, you know, I think eventually things will things will come one's way, you know. But it's you know, nobody said it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Do you enjoy the business aspects of being a freelancer? I mean, they can be considerable. Mm, yes and no. I, I mean, you know, it can be a bit of a grind. Uh, you know, sending off invoices. Um, and then chasing people for payment. Yeah. Um, that's probably one of the negative aspects. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure you have to deal with that yourself. Um, and, and waiting for people to reply to, to, you know, emails. Um, you know, certainly promoters are very, are very slow at doing that. Um, and even if, you know, they're booking a year, two years in advance for their recital series or, or whatever it might be, um, it can get a bit, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes feel, you know, uh, it's a fine line of, of being pushy, but, but doing it in a really polite way. And, and I, I find yeah. it very tricky sometimes to kind of actually find that balance and, and you know, without coming across too strong, um, because, of course, that can put people off as well. Um, well, but, of course, it comes down to like really what you're marketing is, is yourself and your mm, abilities. Right. Yeah. So so how some people have sort of a hurdle where they can't get past kind of. Uh, dealing in that way they feel almost like they're trying to i don't know push themselves on people or or how, how do you yeah. how do you get past that sort of mentality that's a it's a hard it's a hard one i mean it's it's a big learning curve and i think sometimes um it it can be de- dependent on who you come up uh, you know who you come across and how they re- respond to that um, and some people will just see it perhaps, uh, you know, again, in the kind of case of a, of a, of, of a young student, you know, that somebody who's, um, on the way to graduate or a recent graduate, um, you know, some people will look at that and go, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is just keen and eager. Um, but other people may, uh, may take it the wrong way and, and take it as arrogance or, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's, I mean, I don't think there's any any right answer honestly Sean I, I you know I think it's it, it's um it's it's about it's probably it, it is it's, it's one's attitude you have to think about your attitude um um to just be you know polite respectful um and and uh, and appreciate what comes and, and be thankful I think that's that's the most important thing uh, and yes of course we do have to promote ourselves but but we can do it in such a way that um that doesn't doesn't alienate anybody you know and of course you know there will be exceptions and there will be people that that you know just are not interested um and 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 you know that's the fact of life isn't it you know you're not always gonna gonna be friendly with everyone so 
you know, you just take it as it comes. Well, art um, and, 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 you know, playing an instrument is so personal. I, I, I sometimes mm. wonder if maybe it's the personal aspect of the art that makes it seem almost a different kind of promotion than it is. I mean, if someone was a, a freelance, um, you know, lawyer or plumber or whatever, they would have no problem, you know, just letting mm. people know about their skills and the value they can yeah. add, right? But they don't take their, their, you know, their skills as a plumber to heart, perhaps, <laughs> like, well, in that way, yeah. you know? But for us, it's like, oh, man, you put yourself out there, and then if, if you get rejected, it stings, you know? Mm. Yeah, so. absolutely. I think it's because, it's because the arts, uh, in general, are so subjective. And that's, that's you know, what, 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 you know, that person says is amazing. The next person is going to say, oh, I'm, I don't quite like that. I prefer this. Yeah, but there's room um, for everybody, you know? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. There is room for everybody. Uh, I fully agree with that. Um, and, and um, you know, everyone can bring something to the table. I think that's, that's the thing. It's, 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 it's your value, I think. What, what can you bring, bring to, the, to the profession as a musician uh, and not necessarily as a clarinetist, you know? Yeah, the value added. Mm. So yeah. do you kind of separate out the business aspects of being a freelancer and the marketing from your, your artistic and playing side? Or I know some people view them as, you know, trying to almost be one and the same and other people are very ardent that they're separate. So how, how do you feel about it? I personally, I, I, I personally try and be separate with, with it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because it's, yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of it's like like having a home life as well you know you know it's just like once you walk through the door that's it you know you've done your job for the day and it's like hi honey i'm home type of thing yeah um yeah i, tr- I mean i personally try and do that i, I mean it, I, you know i'm probably not i'm probably not very successful in doing that i don't know but um but uh i think um when i when i focus on the kind of you know artistic side of things you know um, I like to purely focus on that and not to, not to have to worry about, um, did I respond to that email or, you know, did I <laughs> invoice that parent or, or whatever, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly if, if, uh, if there's a recital program that I'm working on, I, I will just, uh, uh, you know, put the blinkers on and, and be on, on that and, and concentrate, you know, 110%. Um, but like I say, it, it's not easy sometimes. Obviously, you know, in this modern world now, it is very easy to get distracted. So, you know, if the phone beeps, got to have a look and see, see what it is. Yeah, it's, it's hard because, you know, you get an email or something and it, although you're yeah. technically off work, it's, it's even if it's, you know, 1030 at night just before you go to bed, you want to check it. Very tough. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I think that's the thing. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly know myself that, that um, I've had to make, a real concerted effort over the last few years um, to actually switch off in the evening. Mm-hmm. So you know, leave, leave the phone in another part of the part of the flat, you know, and, and put it on charge in the kitchen or something, you know, and, and just that's it. Yeah. Once it's there, I don't even look at it. You know, I think it's a good way to be. It's hard. It is difficult. Very hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially in this day and age. I mean, I, I found mm. myself trying to do that once and uh, I actually would unplug my router in the evening to turn off wow. my internet for a little while. And, it, you know, I found it didn't work because simply preparing for the next day, like finding a map to my next gig or something, mm. I, I would, you know, I'm not going to go use a map 
book <laughs> or a phone book. I'm just going to use Google for 30 seconds, right? So yeah, yeah it, it's hard to say no in this day and age. Everything's connected all the time, but the, the always on element is so, so hard to deal with. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So you, you're an active soloist, recitalist. I mean, you, you play with various orchestras. Um, mm. I One that I found very interesting is you, you actually have played with the Symphony Orchestra of India for the past eight years. Yeah. How does that one work? Well, um, I, I did. Uh, I don't anymore. Um, but mm. I, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I joined the orchestra in, in, uh, in the February of 2011. Um, I had a brief stint with, with them in 2010. And... Um, it was a great experience. Um, I was very lucky uh, to be working with um, uh, colleagues that I've known since uh, student days at the Royal College of Music um, and I, I met new colleagues as well from, from around the world. Um, and we, we, did, we did two seasons a year, so one in February and one in September. And... Um, and then there was the occasional, um, there was the occasional kind of project outside of that. So they, you know, bring you in if and when needed. And we did some educational projects as well, and worked with um, worked with children in in various schools in Mumbai, which is where the orchestra was based or is based. It's still there, um, and um, and it was a great great experience. And uh, I was very very lucky um, to have worked with Shardar uh, Tuar, Raphael Piare. Um, soloists uh, such as uh, Barry Douglas and um, Ilana Bragimova, the violinist, uh, and, and and others, and yeah, great training ground, really. You know, to kind of feel um, the uh, to kind of feel part of a proper setup, if you see it, I mean, as opposed to kind of you know going to the odd odd date, which is just like an ad hoc ad hoc orchestra and just rehearsing for the afternoon and doing a concert in the evening. Um, uh, so it was a, yeah, it was a great experience. Um, and how, yeah. how cool though to travel um, like that to India for it was. I assume they flew you to India twice a year then for yeah. the, the concerts. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, we used to do about four or five concerts per season, um, and uh, but we it wasn't just it wasn't just in Mumbai as well. Uh, we went to we went to other parts of India. We went to Pune. We also went to um, Chennai. Um, and uh, certainly my time there, it, we went to Oman. We played in Muscat in Oman. Um, I also, I've done uh, uh, Moscow as well. Um, and um, I know since they've also toured a, a, few, a few places in Europe, Switzerland, I believe, um, after my time. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's generated, it's, it's certainly, uh, it's, it's, um, it's starting to gain a rightful place, I think, in in the kind of uh, uh, Asia Asia Pacific Asian Pacific uh, orchestras. Um, so and and so it should. Well, I have to ask, how did that opportunity come up? Because I, I don't imagine an immediate connection between um, you know what you were doing day to day in London and and mm. and this job. It's just uh, just connections, really. Um, yeah, I, I I think if memory serves it. It was um, somebody that I we'd, we'd done some work together, and, and who was asked to who was asked to recommend some players, and and um, you know, my name came up, and um, and then an email came, and I thought that would be a great opportunity. How valuable do you think connections are for a freelancer? They are val- they are valuable. Yeah, 
um, they're they're important and um, yeah yeah I mean you know it's uh, I, I would say yes yeah, it's, it's definitely beneficial it can be beneficial um, to be on the right side of as uh, you know colleagues and because you just never know you know um, mm-hmm. and you know musicians are generally very nice people anyway so it's always great to be able to go and you know socialize and have a drink with with whoever and after after a concert or, or rehearsal or whatever and um, and you know I don't think one should see it as networking it should just be uh, you know kind of a, as part of your kind of daily life you know as, as if you would if you went to your local bar and just struck up a conversation with with someone at the bar, you know, and, and just, just got chatting. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely important, I think, for, for people to know who you are and, and what you do. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, if you approach building connections more like building friendships, then it's not about like, hey, I play clarinet, want to hire me? It's more about, hey, let's get to know each other and, yeah, you know, totally. finding out over the course of yeah. that relationship. Well, I, I think so. Absolutely. Because, of course, um, you know, if, if um, I suppose it's like being in an office, isn't it? You know, you wouldn't want to go to an office nine to five every day and, and not get on with your colleagues. Mm-hmm. That that would that would be pretty uh, be a pretty horrible existence, I imagine. Wouldn't feel great, um, nope. <laughs> so so I think you know, I kind of treat treat the profession in the same way. You know, um, everyone you meet, try and be try and be friendly and just just say hi and you know, yeah, get absolutely. On with it. <laughs> You know, you're such an internationally sort of um, minded player. I have to also ask, how is it that you became associated with Bakun clarinets? Because I, they're made over here in Canada, and I do know they have yeah. an international an international reputation and presence. Mm. Um, but again, there seems to be options much closer to home, which many English clarinetists would consider, or you know, yeah. you know, options in France and Germany, for example. Um, how did mm. you get in touch with the Bakun instruments, and and what made you sort of fall in love with them over other yeah, options? Yeah, well. I um I first came across uh, um, those. I mean, I I'd, I'd known of the of of Mori and and had actually met him. The first time I met Mori was in London, mm. in in twenty twenty twelve. I think it was. Um, no, no, it was earlier than that. Uh, forgive me. It was it was uh, two thousand um, and eight. Um, he would have just released you know, his clarinets. Well, yeah, I think he hadn't hadn't quite at that point, but there was something coming, yeah. And uh, uh, but I, I knew through the ba- the bells and the barrels and things. And at that time, I was playing on um, on uh, Peter Eaton Elites, which is the uh, English ball, the big ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I'd been a big ball player for a long time. With my my instruments as a student were boozing hawks ten tens, you know. Um, so it's kind of following that kind of uh, English tradition. Um, and um, yeah, I. Howarth's, um, which is one of the major um, major woodwind shops, obviously they make oboes, but have a, an amazing clarinet department as well, and bassoons and saxophones, of course. They, um, I remember at the time in in 2012, that's right, uh, 12, 13, no, get my dates wrong, it was 2011, um, I came across, I came across, you know, the, the, the two, they had two MOBAs, had been sent over just two mm-hmm. and I remember I remember trying trying one and thinking oh this really felt very good um 
and yeah, I, I, um, yeah, it kind of just fitted my concept, my kind of sound concept. Um, it was a very, uh, deep kind of, you know, I'm, I'm after a kind of, you know, a woody sound, if you see what I mean, mm-hmm. you know, something that's, that's deep. I'm not after this kind of elusive dark sound that, that, um, that everyone in, in the US used to be so, uh, with, um, I wanted something that's more resonant, uh, uh, and kind of woody and, and, and the bakun kind of fell into that. And I was achieving that on the Eton, um, I thought anyway. Um, but the, my Eton elites were serviced and, and the chap didn't do a very good job on them. And, uh, and it just wasn't right. And so these, it just kind of came, it, it, probably, it, it, <laughs> it kind of seems like fate in a way, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that, you know, I'd happened to try this instrument and then my other instruments kind of, didn't feel like they had done for the last 10 years. Um, and of course, you know, I'm sure, you know, you know, you probably agree with me, but you know, it's a very personal thing, isn't it? You know, your instrument is a very yeah. personal thing to you. And, and, um, yeah, I just, it felt like the right, the right time to change. So, so, you know, a bit of social media helped and, um, and me and Maury Skyped that evening and, uh, and, um, you know, took it from there really and uh and i'm very you know i'm very lucky to be playing on those instruments i i i'm i i feel very comfortable now on them very very at home um the transition from uh big ball to kind of small ball as it were um it, it, it was it was fairly effortless really you know didn't take too long at all um so so yeah i mean i'm i'm happy as it as it is now and and i you know, I don't want to change, and uh, I look forward to the other innovations that that Mori and 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 Joel and everyone at the uh, at the Bakun factory have got got in store for us. Were you able to purchase the ones that you first tried and, and enjoyed so much, or did you have to special order a new set, or or how did that work? I, I know I, they have long waiting lists. Mm, yeah, I, I, I special ordered um, in in uh, two thousand late two thousand twelve, and my B flat came in in. Uh, when did it come? May? Uh, no, March or April of 2013. And then I got my A the year after. I think it was around June or July. So, Did, did you go with the Coca Bolo or the, the Grenadilla wood? I, I've heard um, some people prefer different ones for different reasons. Well, I, um, I, had only, I, I only had the opportunity to try the Grenadilla. Mm. Um, and so that's, all I, that's what I chose. Um, and... I mean, I have subsequently tried Coca Bola ones, and I do like those as well. Um, I, I think, you know, ideally, I'd like a set of Coca Bola as well, just to <laughs> kind of feel a bit greedy. Um, but I, I thought, you know, I like the Coca Bola. I, I, my personal feeling was, for me as a player, the Coca Bola would would sit really well in a chamber music setting. Um, the Grenadilla um, uh, helps helps in a much larger setting, you know, in an orchestra. or or something like that um but no i mean i mean i'm, I'm happy at the moment so yeah yeah <laughs> so we, were, we were chatting a bit before we went on air about uh about the bakun factory and i you know we found out we've never actually you know been to vancouver to tour yeah. it but oh i would highly recommend it I, I had the chance just a couple months ago and it was so interesting mm. to just go through there and, and see how they make everything and uh so if you ever get the chance and you want to see where your clarinet was born it'd be a great great opportunity to check oh it yeah out. Yeah, it's definitely on my uh, on my uh, bucket list. Yeah. 
Fantastic. So I have a copy of your latest CD here um, called English Fantasy. And uh, one of these will actually be featured for the giveaway for today's episode. Um, what were you trying to accomplish with this CD? And what would you like to say to the person who gets the chance to win this item? Well, um, I think uh, to the person that, that uh, wins it, um, I hope you enjoy the repertoire. Uh, my um, thoughts behind that project, uh, I, I'm very passionate about, um, about the English repertoire for, for our instrument. Uh, there's a lot of it. And most of it's um, widely unknown. Um, I mean, can I ask you a question, Sean? How, uh, what, uh, if you could just give me five uh, British clarinet works off the top of your head right now, yeah, what would not, they be? It's not easy. I could list the ones on the CD here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apart from the ones on the CD. Yeah, not many. It's very, very, very few. And they would be, yeah. you know, this is, uh, it seems like you've kind of gone off the beaten path a bit with these composer selections. A little bit, yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 two, the two major works that kind of bookend the disc, um, uh, the William Olwyn Sonata mm-hmm. and the John Island Fantasy Sonata, um, they're major big pieces in, in, the, in the kind of the English repertoire. Um, the, the Island was, was written um, with, uh, for Frederick Thurston, Jack Thurston, um, who, who, who was, uh, you know, one of the top, top players in, the, in well, I suppose from the 1920s right up to his uh, untimely death of uh, lung cancer in, in the mid 50s, um, and you know, Thurston and, and John Ireland actually really collaborated together, and in fact they you know they actually performed it together, and there's 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 an actual BBC radio broadcast of them performing it together. The William Alwyn uh, was premiered by uh, Frederick Thurston's wife, Dame Thea King, mm-hmm. um, and and that was that was written. If memory serves, I'm sure somebody might be correct to me if I'm wrong. Um, in the 1980s, 1982, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the other works on the disc. Um, well, the the uh, the the two works by John Carmichael. He's still around. He's he's uh, still with us. Um, he's Australian by birth, but has has uh, lived in the UK all for 50 plus years. Um, he came over initially to study with. Um, uh, Arthur Benjamin and Herbert Howells. Um, so, so you know, I consider consider him as an English composer. Mm-hmm. And the other living composer on the disc is uh, Clive Jenkins, who is somebody I've known since about the age of uh, fourteen, fifteen. He accompanied some of my first solo solo concerts, um, and uh, he, uh, yeah, I mean, he's fairly prolific. He's been, he's been writing. A lot. He wrote a clarinet concerto, which I I premiered many many years ago, um, and and you know uh, he has supported me throughout my career, and I'm very very grateful to him uh, for that. And so this was a little a little thank you, you know, to put that on there. Um, so uh, the five pieces, Clive Jenkins, and and of course, if anyone wants a copy of that, I can uh, I can um, make sure that they can get get a copy. Um, and then the other work on there is the um, Cecil Armstrong Gibbs. And, and he's another British composer that, um, that uh, has, has really needs more recognition. He's a symphonist, he's written a few symphonies, um, and these little uh, three pieces were written for Jack Brimer towards the end of his life. Um, and again, Jack Brimer is another eminent uh, 
British British player. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I mean, that's just a tiny little snapshot of what there is. Um, and I'm kind of a little pet project of mine is is I'm kind of researching um, a lot more. Uh, you know, in, into the kind of the the repertoire and uh, and seeing what there is available and and digging up digging up some stuff and and actually um, I can mention I suppose here um, that I actually unearthed and discovered a clarinet concerto a, a late Victorian clarinet concerto uh, by a fairly eminent composer in his day um, who was a professor at the Royal Academy of Music, um, which is. Uh, it's actually brand new. It's never been performed. Um, and I'm guessing wow. it was written, written in about the 1880s. Um, but there's no, you know, in my, uh, my primary research so far, I've not been able to, um, find anything, um, that actually says that this piece was ever performed. Um, I don't know who he wrote it for, why he wrote it or when he wrote it. So, um, and that's something that um, I'm going to be exploring a bit further, hopefully. Um, and 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 then getting sorry, it, who was that piece by? Who was that piece by? Sorry, um, it's uh, uh, the composer is Ebenezer Prout. Oh, okay. Um, so he's he's probably somebody that's not very familiar um, to a lot of people. Um, he he was more famous actually for um, doing the novello editions of the Handel oratorios. That was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that was a big thing of his um, Handel and, and kind of brought music so Bach I, as well. I don't actually know if I answered your question, but the only like mm. the, the, I think that for me for clarinet uh, composers, anyways, I think that Arnold and Finzi are the first two that come to mind. Um, okay, El- yeah. Elgar is my favorite English composer. Um, what other yep. ones should people be aware of and adding to their list of clarinet repertoire to um, check out from yeah. of an English origin? Yeah, of course. Well, um, you just mentioned Algar. Algar did actually write a piece um, for for clarinet and piano. Um, it later became the big viola solo in his overture in the South. Um, and, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, uh, um, the name escapes me. Is uh, um, it's an enigma. <laughs> yeah, but it, he he pencil he basically wrote. Uh, it was kind of intended for um, Charles Draper. Um, and, and Charles Draper was one of Algar's preferred clarinetists, supposedly. Mm. Um, but, but, um, other composers that, uh, we, we should, you know, English composers should be looking out for really, um, you mentioned Arnold and Finzi, of course, but John Ireland, definitely William Alwyn, um, those, those two sonatas, they're big, big meaty works. Um, there are other composers such as, uh, Richard Wolfew, um, who's kind of, Oh, he's sort of early 20th century, so 1910s, um, that kind of 19, you know, 1920s, that kind of uh, time frame. Um, the the Stanford pieces, the Sonata and the Three Intermezzo, uh, Intermezzi, as well as the Concerto, of course. Um, uh, I was just trying to, trying to think. Um, Alan Rawson wrote an interesting clarinet quartet. Um, um, Arthur Bliss. Uh, there's lo- <laughs> there's <What>? loads that <laughs> one can mention. Well, you um, know, though, it, you, this might be a surprise, but here yeah. a lot of people I don't really think play these pieces that much. So one one nice thing about this disc is that for those you know North American recitalists or students who are looking to expand their repertoire, it's a nice a nice uh, listen through to sort of hear things you might want to play and in- incorporate mm. into your programs. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think you know variety is really important. It's it's very easy to kind of get stuck 
you know, playing Brahms sonatas or playing Weber or, um, and, and, you know, while they are great works, uh, don't get me wrong, there are other great pieces that, that need to, need to see the light of day. And, um, you know, that's, that's part of, uh, um, and of course, you know, I, I focus on English repertoire because that's kind of my, um, sort of my heritage, if you like, but mm. I'm also very, very, uh, fully aware of, of their obviously American composers and, and other European composers that, um, that need to be performed as well. So, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's important to, to really broaden one's horizons as a musician, you know, and that's, that's, I think that's the important thing is it's very easy to kind of get stuck in the, well, I'm a clarinetist and I will, you know, I have to kind of play the main things in the clarinet repertoire, like Mozart, Brahms, you know, Weber, yeah. Um, maybe Spore or whatever. Um, but, but actually, you know, if you think a bit more outside the box as a musician and, and, you know, you find something that actually, um, you know, ignites something inside you, you think, actually, that sounds really good. And I think people should, you know, hear it. Then, then, um, all the more, all more the better. I think it's really important. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think creative programming is such an important part of, mm. of playing, you know, things like a recital. And, and I would imagine, being on a university jury, for example, I mean, you must just get tired of hearing the same Weber played, you know, for 30 years. <laughs> I mean, well, I, kind I, of refreshing. I expect so. Yeah. Yeah. Refreshing to hear yeah. something new. I mean, of, of course, it's important repertoire to study, but I mean, there's so Absolutely. much music out there. I think this is mm. a really fantastic addition to the, uh, the clarinet CD repertoire out there. So wonderful. Um, is there anything else coming up? in the future here that would be um, of interest to the audience? Oh, um, well, I have another CD, um, ah. which I'm one of the guest soloists on. Uh, it's called British Serenade, and it's a collection of, of, uh, of works by English composers with string orchestra. And I, uh, my little contribution to it was the, uh, uh, you mentioned Malcolm Arnold and uh, I, uh, on that disc is the premiere recording of the concertino by Malcolm Arnold, mm. um, which is Opus 29A. Um, and for, for your astute listeners out there, they'll, they'll probably be thinking Opus 29. Hmm. That sounds familiar. Well, it, it is because it's the orchestrated, um, sonatina, uh, which uh, Arnold, um, authorized in the 1990s. Hmm. So it's, it's it, and it works, and it's, it's a good addition to the kind of uh, um, clarinet and string orchestra repertoire. Um, so it, it would sit very well alongside the Finzi Concerto um, and, and and others of, of that ilk. Um, so so yeah, I think it's available on Amazon uh, to to download or to buy a physical copy. Um, so that one's already so, out. Yeah, it came out. Uh, middle of this year so oh, it's, it's great. very very recent yeah and what about rec- uh, sorry recital projects what's your next one looking like recital for that? projects um i have a couple next year uh that have been confirmed already um, um one is one is going to be in uh notting hill um and that's going to be a lunchtime recital and and my uh, the programming for that recital is is all going to be living composers, British living composers, um, uh, and is, I'm gonna it's going to include the premiere of the autumnal dances by uh, Peter Seaborn, 
um, the London premiere of uh, the uh, Airs and Arabesques by Lloyd Moore. And I gave the premiere in Bristol last year of that. Uh, and there, there is a subsequent recording, which I hope will be released at, at some point in the future. Um, I'm just trying to think who else um, I've decided upon for that one. Oh, um, uh, an unaccompanied work by um, Alan Cesar and, and another work by um, another English composer that I premiered <laughs> recently it's very embarrassing that i've forgotten his name um uh derek foster that's his name oh. derek foster so so you know kind of going back to what we were just talking about i you know i'd like to to really um you know get these things get these things played and uh, at least then there's a definite record of a composer's work being being performed well that you know. is the goal of those composers they want to hear their stuff absolutely right? <laughs> yeah well absolutely and, and you know we are uh, you know we're their interpreters yeah. at the end of the day and and uh and and i think it's really important to be playing new music whether it be contemporary or not you know it's uh it's um it's part of the process isn't it <laughs> you know it's, yeah, it's yeah. uh just part part of um part of the musical process well if a composer writes a piece and no one plays it does it exist <laughs> well well exactly if a, if a tree falls in the uh, gets cut down yeah. in the woods do you know it's been cut down <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah so. exactly absolutely Great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, I'd love to do these lightning round questions, but I realize we're mm. coming up on an hour. Do you still have a moment? I do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's, let's fire away then. So these are just Go. a series of short questions. I always like to ask artists and they're all designed to be answered in under a minute. Um, the first one is if I were to walk over to your music stand right now, what would I find? What are you working on? Um, I just put randomly random things on my music stand, but at the moment it's, uh, the 18 etches by Paul Jean Jean and uh, the latest edition of the Clarinet Saxophone magazine. Ah, nice. What is your all time favorite piece of music or album? Uh, I can't answer that, Skip. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard what one. I have too week? many. What is it this week? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, it's, I, I, I don't have one this week, I'm afraid, but it's, okay. I, have, I have too many to even mention. Fair enough, fair enough. If you could uh, go back in time and meet any composer or musician, who would it be? Um, I think I would, uh, I mean, there's so many I'd like to go and meet, but I think ultimately I would want to meet Beethoven and try and persuade him to write a concerto. Oh, that's a great answer. Um, someone recently, it's funny, they said that they want to see what Mozart would have written had he lived in that era. And I think that's a, this is a more interesting answer because if I don't, if we hadn't had Mozart, maybe we wouldn't have <laughs> had such a compelling repertoire for clarinet. So. Well, that's very true. But I think it also begs the question, what would have happened if Mozart had lived? Yeah, longer. Yeah, live mm. longer. Um, do you have a particular book you'd like to recommend to the the audience? And it doesn't have to be clarinet related; it could be anything. Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I, I'm currently reading at the moment the Letters of Leonard Bernstein, so mm. I would definitely read that. It, it's quite an interesting snapshot on on his life. An American composer, though, does that fit in with your English? <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, yeah, I got a lot of time for Bernstein. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, what is the best piece of advice you ever received, and who gave it to you? Oh gosh, uh, um, the be- Okay, the 
I mean, there's there are many many pearls of wisdom along the way, but I think the one that that's, that's always sticks in my mind is uh, from one of my teachers, Michael Harris, who was the bass clarinet clarinetist in the in the Philharmonia Orchestra for many years. Um, uh, he said to me, um, "Learn the notes, learn the notes and rhythm first, and then put the emotion in after." Mm. I like that. That's a, that's actually very insightful as far as like how to learn music. And I think a lot of students think yeah. the notes they think the notes and rhythms are the music. Well, in a way they are, but but um, you, you you can't play the music if you don't know what you're playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so uh, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's a really Im- important way of 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 learning. You know, if you think in terms of steps, obviously, uh, you know, if you're looking, it's like reading something for the very first time. Mm-hmm. What's the rhythm? Then, then the notes, and then once that's all under the fingers, then then perform it. You know, bring your interpretation. Yeah, make the music with them. Mm, yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, where can we find you online? Do you have a Twitter, Facebook, any website? Yeah, I'm on. T- I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at uh, Siglaris. Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, Peter Siglaris. Um, and yep, yeah, my website is www.peterseclaris.com. Perfect. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? Uh, no, I just, I, I think, um, yeah, I just want to thank you, Sean, for having me on as a guest. Absolutely. Hopefully sometime I'll get a chance to come out to London. It's always been on my, my radar of places to go, but I've just never been out there. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, we'll welcome you with all open arms and it'll be great to have a pint with you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I saw a map the other day of the UK. It showed all the bars or something that are there and it was like (laughs) covered in, in, in places to have a pint. So I'm sure we won't have any trouble. (laughs) No, no, we won't. But, uh, there, there are good ones and there are not so good ones, but, uh, but there we are. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Thanks so much, Peter. Take care, Sean. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. For free content updates, coupons, and a chance to win giveaways mentioned on the show, please be sure to enter your email address at clarinet.com slash subscribe. The podcast is brought to you in part by the generous support of its listeners. If you'd like to learn how you can help out, please see clarinet.com slash support. Today's episode was brought to you by Daddario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.